I've entitled this Better Things, so he's saying, uh, he's just used the harsh language of 6-4 <clears throat> that we talked about last time, that you do not want to crucify Christ again. And so in 9-12, maybe it's mitigated a little bit. He says that uh, you, I hope, uh, I have, uh, you know, that uh, better better things, that you will enter into salvation. So he says, you should not be slug, sluggish, but inherit the promises. And the way you'll do that in verse 12 is through faith and patience. And then he takes a kind of hopeful tone, uh, emphasizing at the end, and again mentioning Melchizedek, that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the the idea throughout Hebrews and throughout 6, it doesn't seem to be that they're in danger of persecution, but in fact that they are in some way slothful. They've not advanced in their confession. Uh, the word that's used, they've not trained their faculties to distinguish good from evil, is what he says in 5.14. Uh and so how they might attain perfection necessary to have a trained character is the, the language uh, that that would entail them in some way developing their understanding or ability to distinguish good from evil and the answer that he's going to give in the rest of the chapter is found primarily in the example of Abraham, but it's in the exercise of Jesus' priesthood, and it's in God's immutability, or God's immutable promise. And the promise is unchangeable. It alone secures our ability to endure. And the writer, he's talking here, and he'll talk in chapter 11 about certainty. He'll also talk about enlightenment, that those who've you know, been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Um, and this sort of, uh, both me and Steve Long, who is, has written a commentary, he, uh, it made me think of the notions of certainty and enlightenment that, you know, you might get in modernity. We, I read it long ago, the quote from Boltman, you know, now that we have lights and radios and uh, medical science that, we can't believe in the spirit and wonder of the New Testament. Immanuel Kant, in describing enlightenment in a newspaper editorial, writes, you know, what is enlightenment? He says, it is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. Uh, this immaturity is self-imposed when it causes causes lies, or when it's rather when it caused lies not in the lack of understanding, but in lack of resolve and courage to use it without guidance from another. So, he's saying, you know, dare to know, have courage to use your own understanding, and that is the motto of the Enlightenment. I think the Enlightenment understanding, uh, you know of what enlightenment is, stands over and against what the writer of Hebrews is describing in both terms of uh, knowing and also in terms of certainty. Uh, probably we don't, you, you know all about Rene Descartes' project that is one of, 
you know, tearing down the foundations. The writer of Hebrews is saying just the opposite, that we are to build on the foundation that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so there's a very different understanding of how we go about knowing uh, that uh, the quote from Discourse on Method, Descartes says, I entirely abandoned the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great books of the world. I spent the rest of my youth traveling, visiting courts and armies, mixing with people of diverse temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences, testing myself in the situations which fortune offered me, and at all times reflecting upon whatever my way, whatever came my way, so as to derive some profit from it. So his whole point in discourse on method is the idea that in some way we possess an innate knowledge or a knowledge that's interior to ourselves. Uh, that Hebrews commends a very different course. It's first of all he talks about in chapter this chapter the imitation of those who are building on the foundation of Christ. He points ahead to chapter 11 when he talks about imitating those who have faith. So we talked last time that the foundations of the basic teaching of Christ in verse 7 develop like a fruitful crop toward the better things, verse 9, that belong to salvation. And this salvation is characterized by full hope, faith, and patience that is in imitation of the saints. Uh, and then he sets forth three con uh, or concrete examples of these virtues uh, in chapter 11, that the faithful demonstrate perfection. And in this chapter then, he refers to the promise, it is the fulfillment, that is the uh, basis that is given to us in the promise to Abraham. Uh, and the writer is saying, you know, how do we know for sure? Well, we know for sure because it's on the basis of a promise that God made, God swore by himself. It is sure and steadfast because it is like an anchor securing us within the Holy of Holies, verse 19. And so the place of God's own dwelling, where Jesus exercises his priesthood, uh, you know, chapter 7, verse 16, he exercises it through his indestructible life. The language is that of, you know, the Holy of Holies is the place where God dwells. It's the very presence of God. It's the essence of God made available to us in Christ, that in Christ we can enter in. Uh, and that it is a sure you know, the, the language is nautical language, an anchor for the, show, the, the, the soul. Uh, and here, I think, you know, the, the Jewish notion of God's unchangeableness, his immute is that a word you all know? God's immutability. Uh, any challenge to God's immutability would, of course, you know, if you're going with the Enlightenment notions of God as you get in, or post-Enlightenment, actually, in Hegel, uh, it, there would no, be no surety in who God is. Uh, so, for Hebrews, the God who is not changed or affected by creation will shake creation in such a way that all that is unshakable will endure.
And so they, we need not fear. They can take refuge in Christ in the midst of storm. And the reason it's the, the stability of God's presence and Jesus' mediation of that presence that makes possible steadfastness, that is our ability to endure and hope. Um, Descartes, he concludes that, you know, the cogito, the, the I think, therefore I am, what he's concluding on the basis of the cogito and what comes down through us in Kant is a kind of disembodied soul, uh, a thought that is itself floats free from the world. But the writer of Hebrews is throughout talking about an embodied understanding, that Christ is necessarily embodied and we come to understanding only in and through the body of Christ. Um, so in contrast, we don't think that soul and body are distinct, but that, I think it's Howarwiss who says that we understand the soul through the, through the body, through the shape of the body. So anchor... Hope anchors the soul, anchors the believer behind the curtain. We all, you're all familiar with, you know, in the Gospels that the curtain is supposedly split. You know, the picture is that it's split in two. Uh, and the idea is that Christ goes behind the curtain and represents uh, a kind of, you know, we, when we began Hebrews, I talked about a disenchanted world. Well, here is a world that's filled uh, with the notion of enchantment. That is, that God's presence is made available to us. Uh, it could also be interpreted as Jesus' body becoming the temple is one, one thing. The idea that it's there in Hebrews. The place where God and creatures meet in a new and unique unity is in and through the body of Christ. So, uh, in Hebrews, God is not, it's not that he's emptied out into the world, but he remains in part behind the curtain, a place to which Jesus gives us access through his humanity if we endure. The knowledge or belief that if one but wish could learn it, you know, according to Kant, that the idea in a Kantian or Cartesian notion is that if you just will to know, the will to know or uh, to pursue in and through reason will give you uh, a kind of essence of things. And this means that the world, according to Max Weber, after, you know, it, it, Max Weber refers to the disenchantment of the world after the failure of a kind of Kantian understanding. So everything in the Enlightenment could potentially be rendered intelligible by the laws of scientific causality that helped produce the, you know, the modern era or the technology of the modern era. Uh, the death of, we talked about this in philosophy, you know, the death of God is not just the death of the notion or the believability of Christianity, it's the death of an enlightenment notion of reason. Uh, it's the, the collapse of really Kant's notion of the noumenal realm, which people come along and say, well, that's, that's a fiction, and that fiction sustains everything. So uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, makes, it's a very non-modern, it's a pre-modern appeal. We become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Uh, so certainly, certainty begins not with the self, but with an understanding, a particular understanding of God. This is what he's going to say. Is it chapter 11 where he says that what is faith? Faith is the certainty of things not seen. Talk, I, you know, in my dissertation, I talk a lot about a guy named Slavoj Zizek. Zizek talks about this idea of that he focuses on the notion of the death of God and as a, you know, a kind of atheistic understanding that he thinks in Christianity that we pass through this atheism. Um, and he references Philippians when it talks about the kenotic love of God, that God has emptied himself in Christ. But uh, the idea in Hebrews is the opposite of... Uh, emptiness but it's the fullness of God it's a, a pleroma of God that the body of Christ is filled with Christ's perfection uh, accomplished through his life his sacrifice and it includes his house he says in 3 6 we will be that house but we are not that house if we uh, we uh, or rather we are the house if we hold firm the, with confidence so holding firm assumes Christ's per perfection, His presence, making presence God of uh, the presence of God available to us, uh, is something that we have access to. Uh, let me uh, close with uh, this: is an idea that I think you you go from a kind of disembodied enlightenment notion of the soul. Uh, the opposite is being taught, I think, in the New Testament. And a theologian that understands this best is Stanley Hauerwas. And Hauerwas is saying that it's Ludwig Wittgenstein who cured him of this Cartesian or this Enlightenment notion. He says, Wittgenstein slowly cured me of the notion that philosophy was primarily a matter of positions, ideas, and or theories. Rejecting such temptations to be a system builder freed, freed him to get back, he says, to the rough ground to be a teacher of the Christian language, a therapist for theological problem. So the picture, I think, in Hebrews, the picture that we get in somebody like Hauerwas or in maybe in radical orthodoxy, is that Christian discourse is embedded in Christian practice. The writer is saying, press on, perform these things. So sanctification, justification are things that we live out. Uh, Harwell says the body reveals the soul rather than concealing it. Uh, so those words don't refer to any external reality? They uh, take on their meaning in the Christian life as a whole as we join the body of Christ, the church. That you can talk about sanctification and justification but the picture and the picture there in Hebrews 6 is that the Christian life and the meaning of these terms are modeled for us in others so you can't understand the meaning unless you're experiencing it I think you cannot understand Christianity apart from the body of Christ so why would anybody want to join and that's the thing. We, why do you want to join up? We invite them 
I think, to be a part of a people, of a culture, or of a kingdom. They can't even comprehend the language because they didn't, don't share the form of life. How does anybody understand a language? You're enculturated into it. You learn I language. I think you can interpret outsiders' languages. You can do what? I think you can interpret as an outsider. I don't think there's any breakdown in understanding. What if you don't have a language? I think that you... What, you, what do you mean, like you're an infant? Yeah. Well, I don't see how that's relevant here. Then they can't interpret any language, fine. They don't have that cognitive ability. So the, the co cognitive ability is something... I think that we grasp or we develop as we are enculturated into a particular people. And in a Wittgensteinian idea, the idea is that a particular form of life is one that we, we apprehend or understand as we participate in that form of life. But so that's not what Wittgenstein said. Is, is your example uh, of um, understanding from the outside be like when people look at Christians and see something different about them and desire that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I guess. Because you could you could certainly really understand what they're what they're doing or what they're talking about or, or why they do what they do, but you can see it and you can be attracted to it or find it appealing. Yeah. I'm just frustrated by the sloppy reference to Wittgenstein. Uh, well, straighten me out. I can't. Uh, I'm, I am quoting Hauerwas's understanding of Wittgenstein. So if Hauerwas has a sloppy understanding, take it up with him. But what he is saying, Wittgenstein, this is another quote, he says, Wittgenstein helped me see that the mind did not relate to the body as a cause to effect. For mind was not a singular thing or function. Wittgenstein ended forever any attempt on my part to try to anchor theology, and I thought the language of anchor here was interesting, in some general account of human experience. For his writings taught me that the object of the theologian's work was best located in terms of the grammar of the language used by believers. Yeah, it seems to do away with internal religious experience when I think for most people that's where their anchor lies. I don't, I don't think he's doing away with internal religious experience, but he's saying that internal religious experience is not removed from an embodied experience. I'm not sure what those words mean. Um, this is Brad Kellenberg. He says, Christians should conceive of the church as an organic community and of evangelism as the entrance of others into this community. The evangelistic task of Christians, therefore, is to naturalize new believers into the new community, which will in turn change their social identity. The new believer will be transformed in his thinking and living. And so I think the picture is that, as in Romans 12, that the transformation of the mind is inclusive of a holistic cultural, socio-cultural 
transformation. To a picture of the transformation as simply internal or an, a disembodied soul uh, is to misunderstand not just Christianity, it's to misunderstand what humanity is. Last week, Stuart Liege was talking like just about how what discipleship, I don't know if this is actually what he said, but this is what I was thinking while he was talking, of just like about Christianity is taking in people and like not taking them in because they are Christians, but it like naturally progresses, you know, as things continue or don't continue, people either join in or they don't, and it's not really our decision who joins in and who doesn't. But yeah. it just naturally happens. I think it's also um, unappealing when we get involved um, and realize that there's a community that's really only inviting to those that look like them. Yeah. And when you when you realize that that's what's going on, you realize I'm not one of them. Right. Yeah, I think that's the language here of witness that we that we witness to Christ and we point people to Christ uh, from a Christ-shaped community of people that, in some way, is not Jew or Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That it does away with the kind of oppositional ways of doing identity outside of Christ, but is this welcoming community in which. Uh, I think we, we are changed up. Uh, this is Kellenberg again. He says, language, uh, learning a language is an irreducibly social enterprise that trains a child into a communal mode of living. Thus, Wittgenstein likens language to a series of games that requires partners for playing. The cash value, therefore, of overcoming linguistic reductionism is a better model for evangelism. Evangelism is a process of language acquisition rather than mere cognitive assent to propositions. New believers are acquiring a new language. Maybe we could say they're acquiring a new culture. So each religion has its own internal grammar. I think so, yeah. So how does interreligious dialogue happen? Or why are you claiming that Christianity is... I mean, how are you going to judge between religions if you're just saying, well, it's its internal logic, but we can't compare it because there's no universal rationality. Well, I think there is a, in other words, it's the, that we can talk about universal understanding, but universal understanding is no longer on the basis of enlightenment reason. Universal understanding is on the basis of an understanding of the universal condition as it's perceived in and through Christ. And so, as a Christian, I think there is a particularity to that belief system uh, that, in other words, interreligious dialogue, what we're describing is not to take the religion and extract it from a culture. That's true that we really only understand a religion from within a culture. But I think that we can read cultures uh, and have an apprehension of them in and through the lens of Christ. Not, not in some theoretical sense, but uh, 
the, the, that Christianity gives us the lens that we can read the human condition. How can you claim to read the other guys' internal language while also saying that these outsiders don't understand our reasons founded on Christ? Seems a little unfair. That's the, that's the particularity of Christianity. I, okay, but I don't think that's what all the post-liberal guys are saying about religions. I think it, yeah, I know, I understand Wittgenstein, I, or rather, uh, Harwis may be unique in this. Uh, I don't know about Lindbeck. I don't think he would presume to make any claims about other religions. Yeah, I think Harwis does. So Harwis makes strong claims about other religions and other cultures. This was this came up with the radical orthodox guys. You know, they said, "Well, what we're doing is a kind of when I and I'm, that there that uh, they were talking about Christianity as being the a cult, the only culture with an essence unto itself, whereas." The, their picture of other cultures is that they're inherently um, nihilistic, that they're built on an absence, that there is an inherent idolatrous aspect to it. Uh, that's a strong claim. But would it even, I mean, I don't know anything about these people, but would it even be safe to say that that's just the human tendency that you find it in? Christianity just as much, like, just as idolatry, like, while Moses was busy carving the Ten Commandments or whatever, people were crafting idols. Yeah. So even people, like, who are in Christ, I mean, we all, literally all of us fall into it. It is the universal human tendency, and that's precisely what I think we encounter, that idolatrous, uh, an idolatrous tendency or the tendency toward making nothing, taking nothing and making an absolute something is what cultures tend to do. What we're saying about Christianity is that it's grounded on a sure and certain promise, that there is an essence there that is not to be found in other cultures and religions. It's a strong claim of particularity about the nature of Christianity and about the human condition. Yeah. Nothing enlightenment about it. In other words, there's not this universal reason that we have accessible to us through a turn you know, toward the cogito or toward uh, re religion within the re limits of reason alone. What is being said is, no, actually reason reduces it to a kind of nihilism itself. And that's the picture of what's happened in the Enlightenment, you know, that the cogito is clearly, even, even Kant says this about Descartes, he says, well, the thinking thing is an empty category. Unfortunately, Kant's own attempt to rescue the thinking thing falls back on its own sort of nihilism and once you posit this noumenal category that is an empty or at least it's an inaccessible category. And so enlightenment thought is a kind of demonstration of the failure of human thought.
I'm not sure I understand what all of that meant. However, I think what I'm hearing you say is that just as it is um, outside the church, it is also inside the church. Wherever it is that the mass of people see things are going, there's there's this tendency to perhaps anonymously or quietly rebel against it. Is that to to? Uh, the idea of I mean that's certainly what Descartes is. What you're saying is a. Uh, that every generation comes along or every group of people comes along and says we got to get rid of the previous you know that's certainly what Descartes did he looking out his window and said we need to tear down all the foundations and that's what that's really what Kant is re he's reiterating the same thing he's saying well we got to get rid of that Cartesian stuff we got to tear it down and and a way of talking about this is a, a kind of apocalyptic understanding that every generation wants its own apocalypse you know that's the the favorite thing on tv you know the world's coming to an end Uh, i think there is a legitimate apocalyptic understanding that we get in the new testament but it's not one in which you wipe away the foundations or you depend upon you know, in, in interior human authority, but the picture, and this is the, the sense in which I think uh, Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, you know, that there is, there is this understanding that God has come, invaded the world in the resurrection. And this is then the foundation that we build upon. Belief has become, you know, Christian belief is a strange thing and almost an impossible thing if you begin from somewhere else. But what these guys are saying is, well, no, actually you begin uh, that the foundation that has been laid has been laid in Christ Jesus. There is no other foundation that has been laid. You can't build on a human foundation a Christian understanding. And I think that's what's happened in, uh, you know, a kind of enlightenment reason. Uh, The the resolution, as it was for the Hebrews, as it is for every generation, uh, is an abandonment of the notion that in some way we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So are we supposed to throw out science? Science, I mean, this is your your thing. You know, that science, what is science? You know, and the, of course, there's workaday scientists. That science is going to put along and do do everything fine, just like engineering. You know, engineers don't need to open up the Bible and figure out how to build a bridge. Scientists are going to. But when you come to philosophy of science, then you encounter the difficulty of saying what human, and it's not that it's peculiar to science, it's just peculiar to being human. What does it mean to be human? And so in philosophy of science, they face the same crisis as uh, as in, I mean, the philosophy of science is struggling with the failure of enlightenment thought. 
is it? I think that's what you get with Thomas Kuhn, that Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolutions is describing the way that science actually works. What he's fighting against is a picture of science that they laid out that science was thought to work along a kind of progressivism laid out in the Enlightenment. Uh, what he's saying was, no, actually science doesn't work that way. That science works in and through culture. It works in and through paradigms and theories. And as you know, did he come up with any grand conclusion about human thought? This is still the ongoing discussion in philosophy of science. A lot has happened since 1962 in the philosophy of science. Write it down for us. I don't know all about it, but you don't either, so I don't know why you're saying there's this big crisis in the philosophy of science. Uh, is I know that you have people like Michael Polanyi that have written from a Christian's perspective on personal knowledge. You have Bernard Lonergan, who has written extensively on the philosophy of science. And so there is an attempt then to bring science into a, a, a grounding in theology. This is actually what's happening in radical orthodoxy. They're trying to reground you know, the notion that theology is the queen of the sciences. But apart my understanding, and you're right, I'm not, this isn't, um, uh, but my presumption is what the presumption of each of these guys is, and I think the presumption of the New Testament is that theology, like every other human enterprise, needs the grounding of theology in order to understand how human thinking works itself out. Science needs to be grounded in theology. This is the, the medieval, you know, classical understanding that theology is the queen of the sciences. And it's not that it's peculiar to science, it's, it's just what it means to be human. And what a scientist is not non-human, a scientist is just another human being who is attempting to attain the truth through human thinking. And so in some way, science does need to appeal to a theological understanding to make sense of itself. I'm just struggling how this connects. I'm saying, I'm saying that the writer of Hebrews is saying, how do you have certainty? By a sure and certain promise that God has sworn by himself that Christ Jesus has entered into the veil, into the Holy of Holies, that we have the essence of God mediated to us through the high priestly work of Christ. Uh, that, in other words, conversion or following Christ is not something that we can just tack on to an already existing worldview. But I think what we do when we become a Christian is that our world is completely changed up. And Christ is the foundation of that world. Okay, let's read again the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6, verse 9 to 20. Is that right? And Joel, you want to read verse 9? I don't have it up. I can read it. Though we speak... In this way, yet in your case, beloved, 
we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Uh, and I assume that what accompanies salvation is the three things that we talked about, uh, that he's going to talk about, faith, hope, and love. Uh, and so, and then he's going to, I think he's spending the rest of the chapter describing what this salvation that you have that we're thinking better things of you consists of. And then Jake, you want to do verse 10? God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I was reading an alternative theory of the book of Hebrews. And I'm almost convinced that Hebrews could be written back to the Jerusalem church and that it is, you know, that in chapter 8, 1 of Acts, it talks about uh, the persecution that begins there. In chapter 6, we just read this Sunday in verse 7, it talks about that many of the priests begin to follow the way. And it makes a lot of sense that the book of Hebrews might be written back to this church of Jews and even made up of priests that have experienced a level of persecution such that they've had to spread out from Jerusalem. But uh, that uh, maybe that they've not, you know, they've their property has been seized, that they've been their you know, material possessions have been looted. And in that situation, uh, that you've shown love for the brothers. Now, it could be the same, you know, you could read a similar situation in Rome, that when under the persecution of Nero, the, the same, a similar situation occurs. But I, I kind of like the idea of uh, this book that dwells so heavily on the Old Testament might be written to a primarily even a priestly class of people. Let's see, David, you want to do 11 and 12? We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Uh, so maybe their problem is as much laziness as persecution. And the way that you, again, my point was that the way that you have faith is imitation, that you enter into the promise uh, by the writer will say later, you know, do not forsake the, you know, fellowship of the saints. So how do you do this thing? You do it through discipleship. You do it through, you know, following other people that model the faith for you. This shouldn't be a shocker for us, but for some reason in, you know, our, you know, enlightenment period, I think we all have been trained in enlightenment thought, you know, Johnny goes to, or you come home from school and the kid says, well, you know, I did it because all the other kids were doing it. And mama says, well, it would you'd follow them over a cliff if they jumped a cliff? That is, you got to think for yourself. But 
I think the, the, the way that we really learn things is through imitation, is through having something modeled for us. And that's clearly the understanding, I think, in Hebrews and the New Testament, that discipleship is not something that you do on the strength of your inner fortitude, not to say that that's completely lacking, but it's something that you do as you join uh, people who who uh, can demonstrate how to how to do this. That's what all of life is. We only learn anything from other people. I mean, we can you know somehow be self-taught, but in some way, we're still learning from other people, or our circumstances, or whatever. Of course, you know we can YouTube how to learn piano or whatever, but like. Well. That's still another person teaching you. Right. And, like, I mean, think of, like, you know, how often do you see a kid do something and the kid learns it from their parents? You know, kids, like, have an attitude or they're thankful or they pray or they cuss or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Of course, everybody has personalities. Everybody has tendencies, but habits and whatnot are learned from our environment. Yeah. I mean, it's a nature versus nurture thing. And of course there is some nature, but there is very heavy nurture. The, yeah, it doesn't leave our interiority out of the equation, but it's to say that, uh, that who we are inside is not a separate world from who we are on the outside, that the two then overlap. And so the way that we uh, that we transform our minds is not through purely strength of will, but it's through a transformative, uh, having that transformation modeled for us. All right, uh, verse 13 and 14, Rachel. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Uh, you know, Abraham, I think, is a wonderful example of, uh, of course, he's blazing a trail here, uh, in, in a sense, that he's making a departure. How do, you, how do you get a, you know, what is the departure that Abraham makes? How do you get a person of faith? Well, one thing he left his home, his country, his family, and he went to the land that God was going to show him. That is, it's almost that with Abraham, you're starting from scratch. You're starting over. Uh, and of course, the picture of Abraham is what's happening in Christ, that there is a, you know, that, that Abraham is a foreshadowing of the faith of Christ in which uh, I think our humanity is reconstituted, that how to be human is modeled for us in Christ and in the body of Christ. And I think that this is just, again, a pointer to what it means to be human, that uh, we do this thing corporately. It is an embodied experience. Uh and did we read 15? You want to read that, Alec? And after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. 
Uh, he and you know, and the picture is that uh, he he waited for a son. He waited most of his life, actually, uh, without having received the promise. Later, the writer will talk about Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah, and so even after he's waited, uh, the picture is that Abraham has a faith that is a resurrection faith. Um, so, Abraham is the prototype of faith, both here and in Romans, in chapter 11. Uh, what the faith of Christ is you know the way it's constituted is trusting in God in the face of death trusting in God you know I, I was gonna I didn't read the passage from Matthew but Peter says you know when that Lord we have left everything to follow you that was literally true you know and I think it, it's still to be true that in a sense when we come to Christ it's not that we come uh, with our possessions or with our understanding or with you know our great intellect no we've left everything and I think that's what true faith amounts to that we start from scratch that we be begin to build here and it's hard because it's really in our culture it's so Christianized it's hard to know what like to leave you know because subconsciously most of us have a Christian worldview because we are raised in America. And so it's, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we say the prayer for school or whatever, and God, the National Anthem or whatever, and our dollars having God we trust. So it's something like, what is our culture and what is constituted in the Bible? And it's really hard to draw a line. And sometimes it's like, I think in a, I mean, it's like when you're straight up pagan, it's really easy to say like, oh, well, this is very different than what I've always done. But it's hard to see. It's easier to be a total non-believer than it is to be a confused believer. Right. And it's like, I don't know, like our whole lives we spend relearning things like I think of just where I was this time last year and think of the things that I've had to relearn from my just my world view from our culture our families or whatever yeah, I think it's a continual process you know I think that we're, we're it's a continual uh, dynamic process that we're all we're continually departing from or transforming or entering into, you know. It's not that in some way we, we attain this thing, but I think that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so the, 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 it, is, it is a dynamic process that we've involved ourselves in. Yeah, we're constantly figuring out how we're wrong. That's what makes certain situations in real life become so meaningful, like when something traumatic or, or something really, you know, a tragedy happens, and in the midst of all of that, you find people that are completely, you know, outside themselves. They're, they're showing 
acts of grace or they're, they're, they, they forget about their differences or their, 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 their dogmas or, you know, and they come together in a way that you would expect um, true fellowship to, to look like. And I, I'm thinking of I, the one true story about uh, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish guys that were being hauled off the plane and shot. And uh, and uh, the priest uh, stood up and, and got in the line, and the guy said, "You're not a Jew." And he said, "If you're going to shoot them, you got to shoot me." Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd that story end? He got shot. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a literal instance of that um, in Japan. I can't remember the details, but it was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp and it's uh, we saw that he was a Polish priest in the prisoner of war camp am I saying am I saying this right or was it in fact not a he was a missionary in Japan and they they said okay well we're gonna they they picked somebody randomly and he, and, uh, he stepped in and literally took the guy's place uh so that they're yeah, a kind of self-sacrifice of, for the other. I don't know. You know, it may. I think that we, most of us, are not going to be in a position where we uh, are called upon to do that. But I think that level of sacrifice, of being willing, a willingness to, in some way, relinquish our own egotistical, you know, uh, understanding. That, that it is a continual emptying of the self. There is a kenotic aspect, but it, uh, that there, what we receive in turn is a fullness of life as a result. So. I guess that, I, obviously, we don't face those situations where you make a choice to lose your own life, but I, I feel like there's those kinds of convictions that can happen every day and like tonight at dinner you know sitting there and you know listening about the letters that need to be written and thinking about the number of people over there and the number of people of us and the difference of our lifestyles and you know I go why am I not writing letters I think that's the when Matt goes to Uganda that's the stark contrast you know that he comes back and just sees the wealth in this country and everybody's wealthy you know even if you're even the poor are wealthy in in comparison cell phones yeah and these uh, these people in the slums you know they they're paying for a little space to get sleep at night and uh, and they're desperate for just the world's material goods, but desperate for love. And I think when you, you know, he sends those videos back of the girls singing. Boy, that is just, you just see that and it's so powerful. And you think, well, now here are people that understand the love of Jesus. I've seen those videos. Yeah. It's on the Facebook page. Oh, okay. Have you liked it? I have it. You should do it. Okay. Uh, It's just, there's something... I mean, and Matt says every time that happens, he breaks down crying. Uh, 
You can't. It's just overwhelming. You understand it just seeing the videos of it. That in some way, this is what I think all of you, you know, have said. That in some way, the that our culture here, the the way that we do this thing, that uh, that we've thrown up so many obstacles uh, to the love of Christ that's available to us, and and uh, it's available, I think, in 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 you know, in, in, in a community of people like this. I think wherever we go, there's obstacles because the reality is we are living in a world that is tainted by sin and death. And we think, oh, we don't have any obstacles, but our obstacles for us are what is disguised as success, what's disguised as being well off or, you know... Things that aren't, like, purely evil. Like, we can see the situation um, in Uganda and say that is pure evil. That is obviously an obstacle for the personhood of these people. Um, But for us, our personhood, our obstacle is different. It's nonetheless an obstacle. But it's just like... We may be experiencing a, a stunted personhood because we, in fact, whereas with with in a situation with these people that are desperately poor in Uganda, uh, in, in a sense, the the love of Christ is made obvious, and for us, it it may be that we can't even see the th- sorts of things that we've. I think is that the idea that. Uh, the, the, just the passage from the culture that surrounds us into the culture of, of the church, if we don't see that as leaving everything behind, if we don't see it as a reworking of our understanding, of our apprehension of the world, uh, then I, I think that that is an obstacle for us. But if you've got nothing, it's it's perhaps made easier. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't say easier. I would just say different. Yeah, easier is wrong, the wrong word. You're right. Just different. Faith, you want to do the next one? Okay. Uh, 16? 16 and, yeah. I can't see very well. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear and heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Okay, God did. I'll read it. I'll go. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Uh, the picture is that we've left one thing. You know, this is I, this reminded me of the passage in Philippians that Paul says, you know, I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that I excelled in 
way beyond my command, com companions, but I count all those things as so much rubbish, to take hold of the hope that we have in Christ. I think it's a similar thing here. Our tendency will be to drag ourselves down trying to cling to something that we imagine that we can bring with us. And the picture is, well, no, we've fled to take hold of this hope. You've dropped everything else to, to, to get it. And what you've gotten, then, is the only sure thing there is. It's the only unchangeable thing there is. Here is the ground of certainty. We do not have this ground of certainty in enlightenment thought. We do not have it in, you know, some sort of scientific method. We do not have it, you know, you can just go right on through, uh, that we would tend to throw up all sorts of certainties. But the way in which we come to Christ, I think, is we leave everything behind and we grab hold of this hope. And Sharon, you want to finish this out? I already closed the oh, Bible. Sorry. I'll finish it. Oh, go ahead, Jake. 20 or 19? 19.20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the, the picture, again, is that uh, in some way we've secured what the Jews were never able to secure. They, it was posited there metaphorically or symbolically in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. But I think what the writer is picturing is not symbolic, but that in Christ, that the Holy of Holies, that the presence of God is truly made available to us. The essence of things is not in a noumenal realm removed from us. It's not... Uh, you know, in some way uh, tra a transcendental uh, notion of the world but the idea is that in Christ the essence of who God is the reality, the unchangeable is made available to us